Yeah, so many of you know that I'm currently pregnant. I'm um, uh, entering into the third trimester this week. Yay, so we're nearing the end. Yeah, and uh, so it'll be in February that Dave and I uh, welcome a, a little boy into our family. Um, and so yeah, over the last few months I've been in conversation with the elders and of course with Kevin about sort of what it, would, what it will look like um, in my absence and how to navigate all of those logistical things and the plan was that I would transition um, into my leave at the end of January right as I was coming full term and um, we would kind of make arrangements for that time. And I was really excited to kind of finish up Advent and um, Christmas tide and to enjoy Epiphany with you all and then to sort of um, be on my way and head into mom mode. Um, but yeah, meanwhile, um, as some of you know, um, my mom, who um, lives in Grand Rapids, Michigan, um, has been battling. Yeah, I knew this would happen. It's okay. <laughs> My predecessor Jill always cried up at the front too, so I think it's—I think I'm allowed. <laughs> um, she's been battling a really aggressive cancer the last year. Um, this past month, uh, my mom's cancer journey has been continuing on a pretty tumultuous trajectory. It's included some minor signs of hope, but um, honestly, a lot of major downs. And um, we're praying really boldly that she'll be able to enjoy um, meeting two grandchildren of hers that are on the way, her first two grandchildren, um, really soon, but um, her treatment options are growing thinner and thinner. Um, yeah, and many of you know intimately from your own lives and from the lives of loved ones just how much cancer sucks and how much um, of an up and down it is. One week everything is actually looking pretty good and then the next week things are looking really not good and you're just sort of on this roller coaster ride and you have no idea where it's gonna take you. Um, so it's impossible for me to know uh, when or if I need to jump in a car and take a six hour drive to Grand Rapids, um, which is something I've done a few times over the last few months already. Uh, so I just kind of am sitting on the edge of a lot of uncertainty all the time. Um, I don't know uh, what to think about spiritual warfare. Like I know that it exists. I just don't really get it, and I and I don't and I and I don't really understand. It, I, it seems like a mystery to me. Uh, but if I were ever getting attacked by the devil, it would probably be right now. Um, the same week that we got some really crummy news about my mom's health, um, our landlords told us that they have plans to sell our house, um, and so. Uh, what that means is that someone will probably purchase it and decide to live there. And um, so we, you know, we've really enjoyed Dave and I living um, right near Barton and Sherman in a really nice little house that we've rented for the last almost four years. And um, yeah, and we do trust God's faithful providence. He's shown us many times just sort of the right next thing for our housing throughout our marriage. Uh, but admittedly, we're really mourning the fact that this will only mean more upheaval during a time when you don't want upheaval. Uh, so that being said, uh, between trips to Michigan and family calls and housing research and packing and just pregnancy and midwife appointments um, and taking care of my soul in the midst of a 
terrible and beautiful season, my personal life has truly felt like a full-time job. And um, so when I was speaking, I was speaking with my midwife about all this, and she reminded me that there is an EI-funded sick leave that you can take prior to your due date that doesn't, doesn't dig into your maternity leave. It functions just like it, and you can slide into it, and it will transition fully into a leave. When she reminded me of that, I thought, yeah, okay, God provides. Uh, so with that, I wanted to let you know that I actually plan to go on leave in just a few weeks. Um, I'll wrap things up soon. Um, I'll aim to have my last like Sunday with a pastor's hat on, um, on December 10th. And I'll be back from my maternity leave in, in October 2024. So as I was thinking about all this, I was thinking about the metaphor of wilderness as an apt metaphor for where I'm walking right now in my life. Um, <clears throat> just like when the Israelites were in the desert and they were no longer where they were and they weren't yet where they hoped to be, they had no idea during that time how they were going to be provided for by God. Um, and God never did this for them back when they were in Egypt. And he actually never did it again when they entered into the promised land. But just during that time, God said, no, you don't have to work for what you need. I'm actually just going to rain down. Not like a Thanksgiving dinner or not like, you know, a big birthday cake every day. But just like daily manna every day. I'm just going to kind of give that to you at no cost, with no labor, you won't have to sow in order to reap. You won't have to farm any land in order to eat. You're just going to be sustained with enough for today. Um, so as I've been thinking about that, I've thought, well, this is my attempt to, to pick up my manna, to say yes to my provision in my wilderness season so I don't starve in my wilderness. Um, admittedly, it's not easy to leave so soon. I love my job, I love this community, and there are some days where I kind of fear that I'm leaving all these loose ends that will need to be tied or that I'm inconveniencing everybody. Um, and yet, I, I do really trust, and I'm already seeing foretastes that God will provide manna for Eucharist too. Uh, we don't need to muster it up or force it as long as we just give our entire attention to what God is doing right now. Um, we'll be able to perceive the full richness of his provision together. Um, so as Peter mentioned, we do have plans to uh, bring someone to be around for, for a little bit while I'm on leave. Uh, we don't have like a full update on that, but we will very soon, and you'll hear about it. Um, and just rest assured that you're, you're in the good and capable hands of my very gifted co-pastor and a really prayerful and diligent team of elders who have been very supportive as I've suddenly communicated, I gotta go, and who have, um, who have been really, really good about getting things in order in my impending absence. Um, so I'm, I'm grateful, again, for God's providence. I'm grateful um, for you all and your compassion, and um, I ask that you pray for me and for Dave and for baby and and for my mom and for my family. Thank you.
feels right to maybe say a quick prayer right now. But uh, I mean, some of you know Nina personally, and all of you know her in the life of this congregation. If you do know her, you know that Nina's very competent as a person. Uh, I think it's one of your personality <laughs> traits is being competent. And uh, I, I think what people might not know is that, that for you, this was a bit of a wrestling even in saying yeah. uncle and sort of saying yeah. like, I will take the time. <laughs> um, and so, but I mean, when you said that, I remember you saying once like, I think God wants me to rest now. Yeah. And so... Um, we will pray for Dave and Nina, and we'll do like a formal sending in two weeks. But maybe we can just say a quick blessing and prayer right now as you kind of announce this and, and begin this road towards uh, landing this plane and, and entering into the next step. Okay. Let's pray together. God, we pray for your servant, Nina. We pray for Dave. We pray for the baby. Pray for her mother, Karina, her siblings, her father. We ask, God, that you would take this time and stretch it out and mark it in a way that brings life and blessing and fullness. We pray, God, that there would be uh, a moment to hold these children together and give thanks for your goodness and that all will be well, all will be well, and that all manner of thing will be well through Christ our Lord. Amen. Why don't we take a moment then to stand and extend the peace of Christ to one another because it is his hands who we are in. So let's extend Christ's peace to one another and then we'll begin. Well, peace of Christ, everybody. It's good to be together. Uh, as was mentioned earlier, this is our last week walking through a sermon series. We're not a big, like, sermon series congregation these days. We've been usually just sticking with the lectionary, the assigned readings of the church. But occasionally we like to pop out into other topics or into, uh, yeah, just things that might be helpful for us as a community to uh, wrestle with and also to give us some shared language. One of the things I've appreciated about uh, these reflections on the, the vices and the virtues and the relationship they have is uh, I feel like it's given some nuanced language for discerning. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to live in the way of Jesus without needing to judge every single thing we see all the time in specific? Like sometimes as Christians, it's like we spend a lot of time saying like, that's wrong, that's wrong, give me something that's happening, give me an ethical topic, and I'll tell you whether it's sinful or whether it's good. And, you know, there's something to that. Like, it would be great if we could do that. The problem is, you know, we, we're not all that nuanced or thoughtful. We've got all of our own issues going on that kind of blind us and cloud us. It's hard to know what's right and wrong and specifics for people's lives sometimes. So it's led to a long time of Christians just, you know, especially people like us who are following Jesus but trying to be careful it's led to a time of us saying, oh, we don't really want to make any statements on anything. We don't want to say anything's right or wrong because who are we to know anything's right or wrong except when we see something that's clearly wrong. And then we feel like that's wrong. But then we all have our own definition of what's clearly wrong. And we see something that's clearly right, clearly right, except then we hear more information and we think, oh, well, maybe we have a different definition on what's clearly right. It becomes very confusing and postmodern and then we just end up being vulnerable to capitalists in our algorithms trying to tell us what's right and wrong because they want to sell us products and that's what moves the world forward. That's not even a joke, that's just the truth. This is the gods of our age, the spirit of our age trying to work through our passions and our confusion to guide us. And so as followers of the way, there's been something I think helpful about finding each other and saying, okay, if we can't all agree 
that everything is right or wrong, can we all just agree that greed is bad? <laughs> can we all agree greed, bad? Oh, we all agree greed, bad. Can we all agree generous, good? Oh, we all agree generous, okay, <laughs> right? Just, all right, now we know there's a direction not to go and a direction to go. And what's generous for one person might look slightly different from another, but it, what's generous probably will never look radically greedy. And what's like radically greedy, no matter how much you justify what is radically greedy for yourself, it will probably never be generous to others. And so it gives us a sort of framework to look between extremes. And I found it so helpful to look at all these different topics and the, the podcast is up. I think only one week failed, so you could go back and listen. But I think that uh, it's been helpful each time to have articulated something that is morally good, worth celebrating, a virtue, and something that is dangerous, that will cloud us, that will isolate us, a vice. And uh, Nina and I's hope for sharing this language isn't just to give us like an interesting sermon series, but is to give us some shared language for discernment. That as we try to ask the Spirit of God, what are you doing in such a complicated time with so many different worlds overlapping, with so much information, so much noise? God, what are you doing? What are you calling us to and what are you calling us away from? That hopefully these virtues and vices have given us some language to find each other, to come together around Christ and to move in that direction, even with those that we disagree with or those that we may not understand. Because God is calling all of us further and further into life, into virtue, into the center, and calling us away from all the places where we might isolate. So on this Christ the King Sunday, the last Sunday before the new year in the church, and the last week when we'll be reflecting on these virtues and vices before we shift into Advent, uh, wanted to talk about this final vice, which is called anger, sometimes called wrath, in Latin, is called ira, which contains wrath and anger, kind of like the word ire. Oh, they're a person of great ire, you know? You, wrath, anger, ira. These are words used to describe this seventh vice. Uh, and it's a bit of a complicated one, because in church history, in the history of the faith, there's been a lot of conversation discerning out what is right and what is wrong when it comes to the sense, uh, the feeling of anger. There are people in the church, including desert mothers and fathers, like uh, some of the people that we've quoted throughout this series, Cassian being one of them, who said that even being angry is a sin. Like that moment of like, in traffic, where you're like, Argh! like that's sin, stop. You know, that's, that's what some of them would say. Now they were saying it in the wilderness, and it was out in the desert, and not a lot happened. So like, I feel like it would be impossible to not be angry living in the modern world with just all this stuff going on all the time. But they did say, be careful about anger. Cassian said that whatever you hold up in front of your eyes, whether it's made of gold or something useless, blinds you from the sun. It might be even a good thing that you're angry about, but to hold up your anger is to block the sun from your eyes, and so even a good thing can blind you. So there was, on the one hand in church history, these warnings against even being angry. And then there's our culture today, in which anger has become almost like a, a proto-virtue, like a bit of a new virtue that we've uncovered. Oh, you know, our emotional life, anger is important. Sometimes we're going to feel angry about 
injustice. We're going to feel angry about things that are happening that we think are wrong. And I think a lot of people today would say that that's a good anger, a righteous anger. And that's maybe true. You might have seen like the meme or the quote that goes around fairly often. It says, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. And as someone who likes to be angry, I get it. I get it. And yet, the funny thing about that sign is if you're not angry, you're not paying attention, is that everybody's angry, but they're all angry about different things. <laughs> so it's like if you're, angry, if you're not angry, you're not paying attention. Well, what are we paying attention to? Because we're all paying attention to different things, and we're all becoming angry about different things. And that seems very unlikely then to solve anything, and seems very likely to make us all angry. Which might not go well. So whether justified or not, anger has become a bit of a virtue in our modern world. Well, I think the gospel text that we're going to read this week gives us a really brilliant lens onto anger, onto wrath, in a way that I think illustrates uh, maybe how we could live as followers of the way of Christ. And so I'll invite you, if you'd like to pull out a pew Bible, you're welcome to. We'll be in the Gospel of Mark chapter 3. We'll be in verse 1. You're also welcome just to close your eyes and allow this to wash over you. Bit of context, this is in, uh, early in his ministry. Jesus has been confronted about the way he eats and the way he drinks and how his followers don't fast enough. Most recently, they've been on Jesus about the Sabbath and what we can do on the Sabbath, the day of rest. The Jewish day of rest would have been Saturday, a day where they seceded from all work, totally rest. And there's debate then about what could be done on that holy day. Could anything be done at all, whether good or evil? So this takes place in the synagogue, which would have been a local house of worship within a neighborhood, quite similar to kind of your modern congregation. So this is a reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. And he, Jesus, again entered a synagogue. And there was a man who had a hand that had been withered. And they, that is the religious leaders, those who were scheming against Jesus, and they observed him closely to see if he will heal him on the Sabbath that they might bring an accusation against him. And he says, Jesus says, to the man having a withered hand, stand up in our midst. And he, Jesus, says to them, is it permissible on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil? To save a soul or to kill. But they were silent. And looking around at them with anger, mortified at the hardness of their hearts, he says to the man, stretch forth the hand. And he stretched it forth and his hand was restored. And going out, the Pharisees immediately exchanged counsel with the Herodians against him, that they might destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
So we have here Jesus acting out in anger. You know, he says, what should we do on the Sabbath day? It's like such an obvious question. Should we heal and save a soul and bring life? Or should we kill? And everybody goes, oh, that's a tricky one, Jesus. <laughs> but think about, like, think about when your social norms are being stepped on. And Sabbath is a social and spiritual norm. Sabbath is a tremendous weight. Think about when you're being asked a question, but you suspect some people in the room are now looking at you to see if you answer the question properly or improperly. You know, this isn't just a question Jesus is asking to an individual in secret. He's asking the whole community. He's doing a bit of a spirit test on the character or the soul of the whole community. Can we do what is obviously right, even if it breaks a small religious law? Is the point of religion, is the point of the law to lead us to healing and life? Or is the point of it observing the law, even if it leads to death? And Jesus seems to, on one level, think that everyone's going to get it. He'll be like, you know, what's better, to save a life or destroy a life? And that the whole congregation will go, save a life! But they don't. They're just like, whoa, we don't want to get in trouble. And so Jesus looks around and is feeling anger. But then his anger turns him to the man. And he says, stretch out your hand. And the man is healed. Okay, so let's try to understand a bit more about anger if we're going to break these words down. The hard thing with words when we're looking at cross-church history is we're dealing with a lot of languages. So we're speaking now in English, hopefully. Uh, we've got words like anger, words like wrath, words like ire. If we were to take it into the Latin, which is how a lot of church spoke in history, we'd have the word ira, which is a Latin word, and uh, Latin was sort of the main language of the church, so a lot of tradition would have been in that. But then there's writings in French and writings in Spanish that borrow from the romantic language of Latin. So it's very confusing what words we're going to use here. And then all the way back in this text, this text was not written in Latin or English or French or Spanish, but this text was written in Greek, and Jesus was likely speaking in Aramaic. So, you know, it's very hard to know what to do with language. But let's go back to the text. This text is written in Greek when meditating on this encounter that would have been public where Jesus performed a healing. The author, Mark, chooses the word for anger. The word is orge, orge or orge. Uh, it means for something to swell up. It's tied to the image of fruit being swelled up with juice. And so it's that feeling of something swelling up within us. And, you know, anger manifests in this way. Right? I, I don't know if anybody here ever gets angry, but you know, what do you feel? You feel it in your gut, and you feel it in your palms begin to sweat. You know, it's like the anger is beginning to burst out a little bit. You're swelling up with so much like energy, life, vitality, rage, I don't know, whatever, juice, whatever's swelling up inside, bloody juice. And you start to sweat, right? Like a like a very ripe plum in the sun. Like you're you're beginning to secrete out. Oh, you're you're swelling up like a fruit. That's anger. Your face goes red. You begin to feel like you're going to explode. That's anger. You can see it on someone. You can tell it in yourself. That's anger and how it manifests in us. Now, whether that itself is a sin or not, beyond my pay grade, 
and also kind of irrelevant because we're all just going to get angry like that probably most of the time, often, you know, a little bit at least. We're going to get a little angry. I'm working on it personally, but we're, we're you know, we're going to be there. But what we can agree is not in God's hope for the world is wrath. And if you think about anger as that swelling up, you can think of wrath as like, you know, like a big juicy tomato. And, and, you, and, and if, if you were to take a big juicy tomato and just like throw it at someone and hit them and it would explode, you know, that's kind of like wrath, right? It's, I mean, don't throw tomatoes at people. But that image of like something full of life, something full of juice, then bursting, that bursting is sort of, I think, what, what we could think of when we think of wrath. We even use language like this. She just exploded on me. I did hardly anything wrong, and she exploded, you know, juice, and then kapow. Now, he had an outburst. He had an outburst, like juice was inside of him, and then he burst. That was the act of wrath. Wrath isn't just the swelling up within us, but it is the natural bursting forth that occurs when we cannot remain in control of that anger. When we no longer possess ourselves, anger builds up in us until it naturally spills over, and when it does, it makes a real mess. And this wrath might seem to us justified, but wrath always seems justified. And this is one of the hard things about wrath. One of the books I was reading for this uh, research said that justice the sense that something is wrong and must be corrected, justice is the proclaimed motive for every manifestation of wrath. That justice might be a personal sense of justice. I was wronged, therefore I will act out in anger. But it could also be a societal injustice. The system is broken, therefore I will act out in anger, whether personal or corporate, whether moral or political, however we want to frame it, wrath is always justified by an appeal to justice. The challenge, of course, is that our definition of justice is always going to be different from one another, which means we will just be left with our actions of anger for our side, which creates a real back-and-forth conflict, where one person or one side acts out in justified wrath, and those who receive the anger from that side become angry and act out in their justified wrath, which goes back to the first party, who then acts out in response again with justified wrath, which then goes back to the second party, who now feel even more justified to act out in wrath. But all we ever end up getting is more Wrath, and these two sides do not come closer together, but they drift further apart, like a cosmic game of Pong. The, the wrath just speeds up, speeds up, accelerates, 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 until it destroys one side, or until the entire system crumbles. And this is what I, I feel like sometimes we're just living in this. I don't know if anyone else feels like we're just living in a, a storm of wrath. Anger on all sides, and I think so much of it is justified, and yet I know that my own anger blinds me. And this is my confession. Like, I get it. 
I get it. My default vice is anger. Like it would take like five seconds for me to think of a topic that makes me angry. I can think of five right now. I'm angry about billboards. You all know that. <laughs> it's just insane. It's just, ah, I get it. Soul, you know, like it's just, I got to what? Like there's people living in tents right below signs that say, sold, that's a moral crisis. But even as I yell, I feel my back shooting out. You know, like my body can't handle my anger, even if my anger is correct. And I can get angry about all sorts of other injustice. You know, give me five minutes and I'll start ranting. But it's, this is what's so valuable to, to recognize, is that all my anger doesn't do much to help. And all of my anger, if settled, could find a better way to be enacted, to be manifested, than the outbursting of my anger. But if I get angry, I lose my capacity to focus that anger into a healthier expression. And now I don't have anger, but anger has me. And once anger has me, it is only a matter of time before it will manifest in me. I might be blinding myself with something I think is really good. You know, those billboards might be blocking out the sun, and I want them gone because I like the sun. But even being angry about that thing that is blocking my connection to the sun, that anger still blinds me. It still manifests in me, still makes me unwell, makes my body manifest dysfunction. I end up laying on the floor while my back feels like it's spasming because I've been too angry. My jaw might hurt because I've been too angry. And because I am too angry, I am unable to think and to pray and to discern. And so for the sake of all, it would be better off if I could allow God to take away my anger and to give me a sense of justice that can manifest apart from it. Is this making some sense? Jesus here gives us a perfect example of holding the line with anger. This text might be the closest we ever see to Jesus sinning. As Christians, we believe Jesus is without sin. He never acts unfaithfully. And yet in this text, he feels anger. He feels the swelling up at the obvious injustice, at the obvious blindness of God's own people. He wants to take the side of the oppressed in order to call out the injustice and apathy of God's people. And yet in the moment that anger rises up in him, Jesus turns his gaze away from what is making him angry, and he turns his gaze to a lower place. Instead of fighting what makes him angry, he joins with the place of empathy. He shows compassion. He shows love on the one who he is standing with. His anger does not lash out, but his anger calls him into solidarity. And it is that solidarity with the man that heals the man, that models for God's people what is true, and that does not continue to spur on the storm of anger that is already living in the hearts of his adversaries. By refusing to participate with anger, 
Jesus brings healing to the one who has found himself low, joins himself with that one, and creates a prophetic action that even still today we will talk about as a witness of healing, as a miracle. The antidote to the vice of anger or wrath or ira is traditionally the virtue of gentleness. Gentleness, which is very sweet and soft, you know, like being gentle with each other. Soft hands, just, come, just hugging, you know, embracing. Gentleness is also linked to the idea of self-possession. That we can remain possessing of ourself. That when anger flares up, we don't give ourselves over to that spirit of anger, but we once again bring ourselves low to God. And that idea of a gentleness has become so compelling to me. Because anger will lead you to obsess. I mean, just by a quick show of hands, how many of you have found yourself, let's just say in the last year, angry and obsessed with it? Anybody else? Okay, thank God. Most of us. The obsession with anger leads to wrath. Oh, that person did this and they wronged me. Oh, they're doing this and they're wronging others. Oh, I could just obsess over all the ways to be mad. But what if, what if we could redirect that passion towards gentleness? What if we could be ruthlessly merciful? Like when someone bothers us, we are going to analyze them until we love them, so help me God. You know, I'm going to think about how they probably no one showed them better, and maybe they were having a hard day, and we're all feeling a lot of stress, and at the end I'm going to say, oh, must be hard to be them. Bless them, Lord. And I'm just going to move on through. Like that sort of ruthless mercy is so healing. That if somebody brings to you a gripe, a complaint, anger, you listen to them, and then at the end of their naming all the slights of another, you get to say, yeah, and you know, people, though, they're just not having a, an easy time right now. I feel like everybody's doing their best. You know, watch that friend never talk to you again about any of their problems. <laughs> but like, okay, maybe. Maybe it's just been too appropriate for too long to rage and curse and cuss at those that make us angry. When really all along we could have been discussing and discerning, but offering mercy, offering grace, offering a gentleness that in the end sets us free and sets others free. Because this, my brothers, sisters, and siblings in Christ, this is who God is. Our God is a ruthless God. Our God is a God who searches and hunts for any part of us that is open to gentleness and compassion. Our God is always looking for us and seeking us out so that our God might be gentle with us. And any running and hiding that we do from God is only because we do not know that God has our best in mind. A friend of mine says that when he thinks about God getting him, he thinks about a farmer, like a good farmer, trying to corner a chicken to like pick it up, you know, and it's like, I'm just trying to pick you, I just got to take care of you, you know, check you out, make sure you're okay, and you know, you go up to the farmer, and the chicken goes up to the farmer, or the chicken goes up to the farmer. Sorry, 
flip that. The farmer goes up to the chicken, comes up like, okay, chicken, the chicken's running. Oh, God, I gotta get out of here. I gotta, you know, and it gets cornered eventually and, you know, trying to freak out and hiding. But all along, the gentle farmer just comes and, and picks up the chicken gently with compassion. Like, what are you running from? I'm here for you. Or maybe these words, which we'll close with, the words of uh, Eugene Peterson, who some of you will be familiar with, a, a pastor and, and writer, who said he only ever had one sermon. And he would say every sermon he ever preached was just this one sermon. And no, he never told anyone what the sermon was, but after he died, his son said, oh, I know that one sermon because my father would often pray that over us at night. And this was always his one sermon. And it maybe is a, a great way to wrap not only this reflection on wrath and anger, but, but on the virtues altogether. This was Eugene Peterson's one sermon. He would whisper to his son in the night, God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. Amen.